remain standing in honor of God's Word. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2, this is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are called to live by faith and not by sight. At the present time, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Christ. But with the eyes of faith, we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the excuse me, made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. By your spirit, give us faith to live according to this reality that Jesus is seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning over the nations. May the reign of King Jesus fill our hearts with peace and confidence. We pray these things in his name. Amen. May be seated. On one occasion, a well-educated Hindu scholar complained that Christian missionaries actually misrepresent their own Bible. He said, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books of religion in India, we don't need any more. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the world of creation, and the history of the human race. That is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside of it. Simply put, this Hindu complained that while the Bible explains history and what is going on in the world, Christians and missionaries have reduced it to a book of religion or morals or inspirational thoughts when it is so much more. Now, as a Hindu, I don't think it's surprising that he would make that observation because according to the Hindu religion, the world is just going around and around and around like a merry-go-round with an endless cycle of reincarnations. But as a Hindu reads the Bible, he sees that God is in control of history 
and that it is moving in a specific direction. And for our purposes this morning, we want to realize that God has intervened in history in the person of Jesus Christ. Specifically in his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection on the third day, and what we're celebrating this morning is ascension into heaven 40 days later where he sat down at the right hand of the Father and where he is seated, ruling and reigning over the nations. And as a Hindu reads that, he understands that God is working in history. And because of Jesus Christ coming from heaven to earth, history is now moving in a very specific direction. And Psalm 2 is one of my favorite songs. I, I love this song. And it specifically tells us about the intervention of Jesus into history and how that changes things. Uh, this psalm divides neatly into four parts, and each section has three verses. If you're taking notes, here's your four points. First, we have the voice of the world, and then we'll have the voice of the Father, and then the voice of the Son, and then the voice of the Holy Spirit. So it's also a very Trinitarian psalm as well. So let's begin with the voice of the world. When the curtain opens, as it were, on scene one, what we see is a massive mob clamoring and raging angrily. The psalmist begins by asking the question, why do the nations rage? He goes on to say, why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. Why would they do that? Because all this plotting and raging and conspiring doesn't have the slightest chance of succeeding. And then in verse 2 he says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The nations, the peoples, the kings, and the rulers all have a common enemy. The living God and his anointed. They hate him. They oppose him with every fiber of their being. And we have to wonder, why would they do that? The God of heaven and earth is the one who has blessed them with life and breath. And every single good gift that they enjoy. Why would they set themselves together against this God? We're told in verse 3, notice what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. To these rebels, God's word and God's law are like prison chains that hinder them from living a life of freedom. They don't want God telling them how to live. And this has been the attitude of man since the dawn of time. Remember what the serpent said in the Garden of Eden? Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, 
your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Imagine that you can be like God, knowing good and evil. Or we could translate that. You could be like that. You could be like God, determining for yourself what is good and what is evil. Imagine that. You can decide for yourself, this is good, this is bad, regardless of what God has said. You can put yourself in the place of God and put together your own set of laws. Years ago, Ted Turner thought he would displace the Ten Commandments with his own Ten Voluntary Initiatives, as he described them. And I won't go through them. You can look at them. But what a great example. We don't want God's commandments ruling over us. Rather, this is what we'll do. I'll put together my own list of rules and regulations that I will live according to. But as Christians, we should love God's law. Uh, some have thought that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 actually go together. And the reason for that is because Psalm 1 uh, begins in the same way that Psalm 2 ends. Notice Psalm 1, 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So it begins with that great word, blessed. And then how does Psalm 2 end? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is very common in Hebrew poetry. It's called inclusio. You begin and you end the same way. But regardless, notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 1-2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. If you're a Christian and God gives you commands, you're like, that's a great command. That's a beautiful command. And every single command is not only for God's glory, but for your good and your joy. And I can tell you, if you look at your life and look on the paths of your life, the times when you experience the most misery is when you put yourself in the place of God and you thought you knew better than God and what was good and what was evil and you violated the laws or the commands or the ordinances of God and it led to heartache. God's laws are good. They're pleasing and perfect if we can just see. I love what uh, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said. Is your delight in God's law? Do you study God's word? Do you make it the man of your right hand, your best companion, and hourly guide? If not, this blessing belongeth not to you. But if so, then the blessing offered in these psalms belongs to you. Now, where do we see the pinnacle of man's hatred and rebellion against God? and his anointed. You know where we see it? We see it in the crucifixion of Christ. If you have your Bibles, you can turn ahead to Acts 4. 
And by the way, I'm not the only one who really likes this psalm. Uh, many, many of the New Testament writers like this psalm as well because there's many uh, references in the New Testament to this psalm, and one is found in Acts 4, beginning in verse uh, 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then here's the interpretation. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the crucifixion was all part of God's sovereign plan. Nevertheless, those who conspired against the Lord and his anointed are held responsible for their sin and their rebellion against him. Scene one comes to an end. The curtain closes, as it were, and then it opens again, which brings us to scene two, where we have the voice of the Father. And as the curtain opens for scene two, we see the Lord sitting on a throne, and it's high and lifted up. And you say, how high? I don't know how high, but it is way up there. I, I know this, it is so high that it is above all the other thrones that are here on earth. And as the Lord is sitting upon his throne, if we could see, he is surrounded by tens of thousands of angels. And of course, you know what they are doing. They are singing his praises. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And day and night, they never cease because they never get tired. Of singing his praises. So constantly they are singing his praises. And as God is sitting on his throne, you know what he does? He looks down. And he has to look way down at the pygmies on earth who are rebelling against him because they can't stand his holy laws. And as he looks down at their rebellion, you know what he does? <laughs> Look at them. Right? That's what we have in, in verse 4, right? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He is not the slightest bit disturbed by the sin and the rebellion that is taking place on earth. He is the sovereign God. He is in complete control of everything that is taking place, including human history. This massive rebellion against God is a joke. He holds them in derision. He mocks them, in other words. And then verses 5 and 6. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. What he's about to say next is going to be the most 
frightening thing that these rebels could possibly hear. And what does he say? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I believe the reference to Zion here is talking about the heavenly throne. That's a reference we have in Hebrews 12, 22. We're told that Mount Zion is the heavenly Jerusalem. These rebels wanted to be in charge. So they killed Jesus. So they can live however they want. But what does God do? God raises him from the dead. God lifts him up and puts Jesus over them as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And now they are absolutely scared to death because they have to bow down before him and confess that he is the most frightening thing that they could possibly hear. And this is important. This is the gospel. This is part of the gospel. Turn to Acts 2, if you will. This is very important. We, we highlight, and for good reason, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then, of course, we celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday, which is a glorious day of celebration. We get all dressed up and we buy flowers. And just as Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have a dream. Can I tell you a dream that I have? I have a dream that one day we will celebrate Ascension Sunday with the same excitement and enthusiasm as we do Christmas and Easter. And let me say it again, not just the death and the resurrection, but also the ascension of Jesus Christ is integral to the gospel. Peter in Acts 2 is preaching on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out with power. Peter is preaching and basically, he has a four-point sermon. And of course, it's all about Jesus. And here's the four points. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But he talks about the life of Jesus. And then he talks about the death of Jesus. And then he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. But he's not done until he gets to the climax of his gospel evangelistic sermon, which is the ascension of Jesus Christ. That's very important. Acts 2, 33. I'll start there. We'll tell you about back up to 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and then he quotes God's favorite verse. You know what God's favorite verse is? Psalm 110.1. He said, why is that God's favorite verse? Because Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted and alluded to Old Testament verse in the New Testament. And what does David say? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter's bringing his sermon to an end. But all the house of Israel therefore know for certain 
that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And Christ to be anointed king. This Jesus whom you crucified. Do you see it? This Jesus that you crucified because you didn't want to follow him. Guess what God has done? God raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand where he rules and reigns over the nations. And now he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when they hear that, what is their response? If I can paraphrase it, uh-oh. <laughs> Specifically, this is their response, 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The climax of the gospel message is the ascension of Jesus Christ. Not just his death and his resurrection, but his ascension. So we, I, I look at the ascension as the completion of Easter. God raised him from the dead, and he raised him to his throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And for very good reason, Steve Lawson has called, called this psalm the most evangelistic out of all the psalms, because Psalm 2 talks about the reign of Jesus. So with God Almighty seated upon his throne and his anointed King Jesus Christ seated at his right hand, the curtain closes. And that brings us to scene three, where we have the voice of the Son. When the curtain opens for scene three, we are back on earth. It's early morning. As the fog hovers just above the ground, the sun begins to rise. Then Jesus Christ emerges from the now empty tomb on that first Easter morning. The Father then speaks to the Son, but the Father, but excuse me, what the Father says is relayed to us by the Son. Verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. I will tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Today. And you should ask, What day is today? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. Actually, Paul is going to tell you in Acts 13. This is Paul preaching on the day, or excuse me, Paul preaching at Antioch. And it's kind of a long sermon that's recorded to us, but I'm just going to uh, pick it up in Acts 13, beginning at verse 28, and you'll see how he applies this psalm. And though they found no guilt in him, talking about Jesus, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God, ooh, another one of those great, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. 
by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So the interpretation here, according to Paul, is that today, on the resurrection day, Jesus was begotten from the dead. So Father tells them of the decree, you're my son, today I begotten you, but he's not done. Verses 8 and 9, ask of me, that's right, the Father speaking to the Son, Son, just ask me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In ancient Israel, they would perform a ritual before heading into battle. They would take a clay pot, they would throw it to the ground, smashing it into a thousand pieces, and that was intended to be a sign of complete victory over the enemy. So by the Father saying to the Son that you will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, this is the Father saying to the Son, you will conquer your enemies. And many of you, let me remind you, were enemies of Jesus, but you were conquered. We use the word converted. <laughs> you, were, you were against him, but then you were converted and brought over to his side. Now, when the Father says to the Son, Son, just ask me, and I'll make the nations, your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. What do you think the Son said? Of course! Give them to me. Son, do you want all the nations? I want all of them. North Korea? Even that nation? Yes. Which means that someday, in all seriousness, North Korea will bow the knee to King Jesus. It will. Because the nations have been given to him. For 2,000 years, the gospel has going for going forth, the kingdom's been growing and expanding, and it is continuing to go forth. Jesus said, give me the nations, because I purchased them, Father, with my own blood. Then the curtain closes on scene three, which brings us to scene four, that we call the voice of the Holy Spirit, which speaks through the church. And as the curtain opens for the final scene, we see the church doors flown open at the end of the service. And God's people are going into the world. And as they go, we should remember, they go with the authority of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember how we end the service every single week with the Great Commission and the benediction. I remind you, every single week, because I don't want you to forget it, and you forget it week by week. But I remind you that before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you all go. And, and what are you supposed to do as you go? Therefore, you go and make disciples of the nations. You, you, you don't mean the ones that are opposed to Jesus, do you? you like, like North Korea, that we just, you don't mean North Korea, right? Yeah, I mean North Korea. Disciple of the nations. Not some of the nations, disciple of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
Hannah the son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even if as you go, you die as a martyr, I'm with you. So you go. And I love what Doug Wilson says. The Great Commission is not go, it's therefore go. Because all authority has been given to Jesus. Therefore, based on that authority, which he gives to you as his ambassador, you go. You go in the name of Jesus. You go to all the nations. Why are you there? What, what gives you the right to go into all the nations? What gives you the right is, is Jesus told you to go. So you go. That's the Great Commission. Now, notice the warning that we have. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Notice specifically who is told to be wise and to be warned. The kings, the rulers, which is a way of saying, if the, if the greatest are to bow down before Jesus, even the least are to bow down before Jesus. What the ascension reminds us is that ultimately the government that we are under is a monarchy. We are under the reign of King Jesus, who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if it was in our context, we would say something like, he is the president of presidents. He is the prime minister of prime ministers. The king of kings and the lord of lords is just saying that he is over all the kings and rulers on earth. Which means they all have to bow down before him. They all have to submit to him. And I can just hear the objections now, but wait a second. Don't we have a secular democracy? In light of the fact that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, does democracy have a right to be secular? Which means to be outside the rule of God. It doesn't. We need to always keep in mind that there's a big difference between the Supreme Court and the Supreme Being. And there may be times when we will have to join the apostles and say, we must obey God rather than man. Because the day is coming. And then we will stand before the ultimate judge, which will be Jesus, and give an account to him. Uh, the Holy Spirit continues to speak through the church in verses 11 and 12, saying to the, the kings and the rulers and to all people, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. We are called to kiss the sun, which is a way of saying, embrace the sun, love the sun, worship the sun, confess that the sun is Lord. Have, have you kissed the sun? Because you, you love him. All are called to kiss the sun, from the greatest to the least. And if they don't, his wrath can be quickly kindled. 
And then don't you love how the psalm ends? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you want to be blessed? Run to the sun and take refuge in him and you will be protected from the fierce wrath that comes upon those who don't turn to the sun. This is like saying the only place to be safe from a hurricane is to be in the eye of the storm. Turn to Jesus. It's scary to turn to Jesus. But that's the only place where you can be safe and, and find satisfaction. I, I love what C.S. Lewis writes in uh, the series of Chronicles of Narnia. This is from uh, the Silver Chair. And it's an interaction between the lion, Aslan, that represents Jesus Christ, and, and Jill. She's, she's thirsty and she wants to come to the water, but she's afraid to go to the water because there is a scary lion. <laughs> <laughs> by the water. <laughs> Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It did not say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. And there is no other refuge other than the one that is found in Jesus. It is frightening to turn to Jesus Yet it's the only place where forgiveness of sin and salvation and eternal life is available. So I would admonish all who are here this morning and listening, turn to the Son, kiss the Son, find refuge in Him, and you will be blessed beyond your wildest dreams. Let's close the prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of this song. We even thank you for its warning, for its admonition for us to be wise. And Father, I pray that all of us will, will turn to the Son, that we will serve you with fear and rejoice, with trembling, 
May we kiss the Son and confess that He is Lord to your glory, Father. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.